0: Hello, I'm so excited to bring you this episode that is very close to my heart because I got to interview one of my good friends from college, Chris Rodello. He is a PhD candidate at Harvard in Latinx studies. And we talked about some of the people who he'll be talking about in his dissertation that'll be focused on unpacking performance, and Latinidad in the 19th century. And the conversation was super fascinating because, you know, I think many people, when they think about 19th century Latinidad, perhaps think about José Martí, for example, but we don't think about Salvadorans, uh, indigenous people too, who the land that we now call El Salvador, Performing in "quote unquote" freak show performances at at the turn of the nineteenth century and, and throughout, but that is exactly a, that is a part of the Latinx story and Latinx history and performance and. The conversation really shed light into currents, archetypes, and stereotypes that are made of Central American migrants as, quote, backwards or, quote, primitive, uh, because the backstory of Maximo and Bartolo, the two, quote-unquote, freak show performers who are from El Salvador, had this mythical tale that was told about them, that they were children who were abandoned in a Mesoamerican temple. Um, and it, it after we discussed Chris's research we got into the legendary house at Yale 73 Edgewood a haven for first gen low income students of color to be free from the social strictures of Yale's mainstream social scene a place where we could twerk dance bachata be super stoned be super drunk (laughs) amongst good people, good vibes. And I, it was really great to take a trip down memory lane as part of this episode. If you want to support the podcast and my dream of transitioning to podcasting full time, you can become a patron for 5 or $10 a month, depending on what you're able to give, you will have access to The Lit Review, which is a series where I discuss various timely texts with women of color over wine. I most recently released a Season 2 Lit Review, or an earlier Lit Review, where I invited friend of the podcast, Denise Rebel, who had previously come onto the podcast for the Criminalized for Defending Education episode, where she discussed her act- her activism on t- uh, saving Mexican-American studies uh, in the tucson school district and we discussed Roque dalton's book of poetry poemas clandestinas and discussed his anti-capitalist politics and some of his and some of his capitalist critiques of the state and like particularly the carceral state cops and prison guards and how his poetry spoke to an abolitionist framework. It was a really great conversation. So if you become a Lit Review patron, you will get access to amazing conversations like that. And um, as I'm going... And in case, you know, just I really want to express my gratitude to the patrons because through the patron I'm able to pay Maybelline who's my marketing and operations intern. She's a Salvadoreña who grew up in Salvador, now lives in Boston and is a thriving graphic artist. She's the person behind the lovely season three graphics. Uh, I'm also able to purchase the books for the lit review. Books are costly, all let me tell you. (laughs) Especially some of these lesser... uh, Especially on the academic text, really, is what I'm trying to say. Um, And just through the Patreon, I'm able to have disposable income so that I can continue to invest in the podcast and podcast production and make this as high quality as possible and if you don't have the funds to become a patron which i completely understand another amazing way to help support the podcast that is completely free is leaving an apple podcast review it really helps with visibility i'm so honored that you all gave this podcast a five-star rating and there's currently 204 reviews which is amazing But it would be really awesome to get some more recent reviews because the last one was in June, and we're now in August. (laughs) Finally, you can follow Radio Cachimbona at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I post quotes, excerpts of quotes, and. the lit review picks and reads and various posts to just spark conversation amongst the kachimbonas so thank you so much for listening and i really hope you enjoy this interview Hello, everyone. I am very excited to have my former housemate and good friend, Chris Rodello here to talk about his academic research. Do you want to give people a summary of what your program is and what your area of research is?
1: Sure, sure. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Rodello. As Yvette said, I am a six-year now a PhD student, sixth year PhD student in the American Studies program at Harvard University. So American Studies is sort of the interdisciplinary study of American culture and history, broadly defined. So instead of just studying, you know, being You know, in a single discipline like history or literature or anthropology, I'm Mm -hmm. in a program that really encourages folks to think broadly cultural phenomena, cultural and social phenomena. Right. So, uh, you know, people in my program draw from all kinds of different um, and and theoretical kind of frameworks, uh, understand, you know, question kind of big questions in American culture, um, like, you know, empire, race, migration, colonialism. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the, that's the program I'm in currently. And within that, within that program, I focus uh, particularly in theater and performance studies and literary studies. So within, so I'm I'm definitely more of a humanities person. So I work a lot with like with novels and and plays, but also I do a lot of archival work. So I do a lot of historical work kind of looking um, to the kind of the past of, you know, American culture um, and history and in, my kind of specialization within that is like Latinx studies. Um, so, broadly speaking, the history and culture of people of Latin American and Caribbean descent in the United States and abroad, which I'm sure we'll get into more in this conversation. Mm-hmm. But kind of coming from like an ethnic studies kind of uh, orientation, uh, that's kind of where I started. Like that's where kind of my interest kind of first formed, and in since like changed a lot since I started the grad program, and which we could talk definitely talk more about like in might um, talk more about my research.
0: Cool. So, thanks everyone. Thanks, Chris, for giving that little background. And <clears throat> just so everyone knows, Chris is also from the Inland Empire region of SoCal. He was from a Mexican American family, and he is a he is first gen himself, and has a strong commitment to supporting LGBTQIA. Black, indigenous people of color and first generation and low-income students and I wanted to ask you about being a first gen student slash you know you were both the first person in your family to graduate from college and also mm-hmm. to get a master's and you're on your way to getting your PhD now and academia I feel is not something that first gen kids usually imagine themselves as it's such a particular field and it is very elitist. So how did you come to decide that you wanted to be a professor and enter a PhD program?
1: Sure yeah I think like, like, like you said like being in academia was not self-evident at all. Um, I think for like, like a lot of first-gen students like I went went to college like just i thinking that I had to major in something and study something that would provide like immediate financial support for myself and my family after graduating Mm -hmm. um i and like i i think when i went to to yale i was like oh like i can make major like in economics or political science or something that seemed like like applicable and practical right Mm -hmm. i knew there was like a lot of pressure uh, on me to like be like the main kind of long-term financial support for my family Mm -hmm. and I, i think when i got to yale I really struggled a lot with like with finding out what I wanted to do. like i I quickly realized that there are people who were at Yale that were much more prepared in these mm-hmm. practical fields. And I were like had like these networks, like these familial networks, like the like went to really fancy like prep schools, mm-hmm. had parents who went to college and who were in the fields they wanted you know they had people who had like jobs waiting for them after they graduated from yeah. college. It's like. I definitely like did not have that at all. So I I think, you know, in my fir- in my freshman year, I just, you know, started taking classes in in random subjects. And one of the ones I happened to take was an introduction to ethnicity, race, and migration class, which at Yale is like Yale's version of like ethnic studies, compared to mm-hmm. ethnic studies, I was in that class, which was taught by a Latina feminist scholar, Alicia Schmidt Camacho. Like she really opened up, yeah, like a a mutual mentor, Um, an amazing scholar and activist uh, who really opened up my eyes to thinking about, okay, like what, I can actually study things that I feel are part of my various identities and it can be taken seriously, it can be rigorous and can potentially afford a career, it can offer a career for me, right? So she was really the first person to say, oh, like, have you ever thought about becoming an academic? Um, Mm. She's the one who, Encourage Me to Apply to the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship uh, is a program meant to uh, support students of color to go into academia. Um, so it's a sort of intensive like, research training program where you're given funding to do your own independent research project and it's sort of a, a pipeline program to get uh, um black indigenous people of color into uh eventually to become academics instead of change the academy which has its own complicated logics um of like assimilation which we talk about later mm-hmm. uh, but that was really the the uh initiative that i, I that gave me like this like idea like, oh i can be an academic and i think i started taking classes and you know ethnic studies and American studies and African-American studies and gender, women, sexuality studies. Uh, And, and I think that's when I said, okay, like, and and faculty and having faculty who were of color, people who were first-gen students um, who are queer, uh, I think seeing them, which it sounds like really simple, but like seeing them like in these positions and understanding not just like, you know, the fact that they were there, but also the, the totality of their labor, what they were Mm -hmm. doing and like to establishing communities on campus for, to support, I think that was, I felt very powerful to me at the time and still does. So I think that sort of inspired me to go into academia and I went straight through. From undergrad, I didn't take any time off, which I wouldn't entirely recommend. Uh, I think I might've done, like taking a little more time off. But yeah. I, think I, I, I think that also speaks to this year mentality. I think yeah, where I felt that I needed to have something after I graduated that I could, You know, it's like say that I I like left Yale doing something, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, like pressure amongst peers at these like elite Mm -hmm. institutions, to like kind of this like one. I mean, I don't say one upmanship. Like this like yeah, this like need to like compare what you're doing, and which is very very toxic, and. I think I also was just, like, really stubborn. I, I didn't know really know what else I wanted to do. I'd spent so much of my time at Yale, like, preparing to become an academic. That it was just, like, the natural thing <laughs> to do. But then, like, which we can talk about more later, but once I was in grad school, like, everything kind of went haywire in an in, in, in ultimately a productive way, right? But, like, I think once I got to grad school, I actually had time to reflect and to yeah. think through, like, my motivations for doing academia and to figure out a practice that was not so much – a, a sustainable practice for myself that wasn't so much, like – okay, getting from point A to point B, but I was just thinking like holistically about my wellness and the wellness people I cared about and like what actually like the intentions I had in like doing this type of work. But yeah, but I think I am I, like, on one hand, I'm, I'm very grateful for like the melan program and these initiatives. But at the same time, I also like recognize how like, they're still like, they're, they're, they also can be very problematic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of me like thinking through now as I'm finishing up the PhD is like, You know, really, like, what 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 are we trying to achieve when we're saying we want like a more diverse and inclusive like environment, whether it's in academia or any other field, right? Mm -hmm. I I think, for my for myself, I'm really trying, you know, in in collaboration with other people in the work that I do, like not trying to make these hollow gestures of like, oh, like just because we have like more like black and brown bodies in these spaces Mm -hmm. doesn't automatically mean like that they're better, right? It can be it can can be the inverse, right? Because I think there's many ways in which you know, that black and indigenous people of color become, like, the arbiters of, like, you know, keeping people out and, like, keeping, keep making the mm-hmm. status quo, um, like, this mm-hmm. idea of, like, being mm-hmm. the, the only person in the, right, like, being the, the mm-hmm. one person who does X, Y, or Z thing. Yep. So I think, um, in addition to, like, my my time, at my, my in addition to, like, learning how to be an academic and research and teaching, et cetera, I feel like my time at Harvard has been a lot of, like, learning how to, like, be in the academy in a way that doesn't, like, negate like the political convictions that brought me to it in the first place right mm-hmm. I, I think that's something i've really been trying to think through is like okay like i don't want to be someone who waits until they get tenure when they have like a right. secure position in university to do or act right mm-hmm. i think that that's is the case for a lot of people of color in academia mm-hmm. um, which i think is like it's like not enough like i get things are too uh, we're not in a place where we can ever do that and i think it, that if, if i think that's something i'm trying to you know, in my, I'm trying to the best to model that and like figure that out in my own practice as an academic and as a teacher.
0: Yeah, I think it was really important in what you said is that there was a mentor of yours, Professor Camacho, who saw you and who put the idea in your head that you could be a professor because, like you said, being a first-gen student, it's not self-evident to you that you can be. A professor right especially your constant experiences feeling alienated and strange as a student in a classroom mm-hmm. in a lot of, a lot of times and really appreciate you thinking through how you can stay in academia considering the values that brought you there in the first place because that's something I talk about a lot on the podcast being a lawyer as well, it's very contradictory to be an abolitionist lawyer. And so I constantly have to be thinking about how I can engage in this profession in a way that feels like I have integrity.
1: Exactly.
0: It's Yeah, and it's pretty difficult, but it's it makes me happy to see other people like you in academia who are trying to do the same um, in academia. Can you give readers a summary of the scholars who informed your work? And yeah, just to start there. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. So as I said, I sort of came into academia like through the the vantage point of, vantage point of ethnic studies. Um, I think those are the classes and in particular ethnic studies, those, and in college, those were the classes that I felt, I mean, I felt a personal connection to. I, I think I was, you know, you know, the, the, these like theories and histories that were like centering people of color, um, centering, like, centering like decolonial, like anti-black practices. Like those were the, the, the sort of the things that, oh yeah, like this is like, I can like, you know, find relevant find relevancy in and it was like you know i think in college like scholars like jose munoz like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a queer or really like uh, who has now passed but really important queer latinx theorist and scholar i think he was i think the person who i like you know so he, he, so he so he works in queer color critique he studies experiences of, of people of color uh various um, sexual identities and was thinking about it through like like, culture. Like, he was thinking about it through performance, mm-hmm. through literature, through art. And I thought that was, was like, really compelling that he was, the, you know, instead of, like, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who, like, I'm not, like, a social scientist. I'm not someone who, like, reads. Like, I'm, I'm not, like, I, I really care about, like, you know, the, the, the power of representation, of the mm-hmm. power of, like, culture and aesthetics and, like, um, and allowing, you know, people, uh, people from marginalized communities to express themselves, to, to potentially enact forms of resistance, but also how it also, those, also enact subjugation and th- so it kind of goes hand in hand uh, i think i was always interested in that that dynamic and it was and my, my thesis in college was about mexican-american supermarket chains like california and mm-hmm. how like um ethnic like, ethnicity like a, a latinx ethnicity or mexican-american ethnicity or kind of being presented in these consumer spaces it was and i, I think with Through that, there was interest in performance and embodiment and how bodies moved and acted in certain kinds of spaces. Uh, But it was in, once I went to grad school, where I actually kind of took a different turn where I I knew I was interested in like, you know, performance and theater, but I actually started thinking more historically about these phenomena. So I actually started doing a lot more work in archives and thinking more critically about how historical narratives about, minoritarian like, subjects like how, how those like different experiences were in, in like dominant archives and how like in actuality like these like histories that we don't really think about as happening like, in the 19th century context the period I work on actually have a lot to do with how with with the contemporary with the present moment so I think that is like where I started thinking more about like studies and works that kind of looked more historically that had like a really deep kind of archival component and that's kind of where I landed on with my own research.
0: That's really cool. The the two indigenous children from El Salvador, Maximo and Bartola. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you give us a brief background of who these two children were and their story?
1: Sure. So Max and Bartola uh, were a pair of indigenous children from El Salvador who were were microcephalax. So they were born with physical and cognitive disabilities that became sort of their disabilities and their sort of status as indigenous subjects became the site of their presentation as freak show performers in the United States and Europe Mm -hmm. from the 1850s to the 1890s, roughly. So they were forcibly brought and enslaved to the United States, and they were put on display. They're exhibited in various American and European cities, uh, and they they were billed as Aztec children. So which, if you think about the geography of like, Central America, that makes no sense. Uh, Um, But they were sort of because of of their, yeah. their, their That's disability. Central
0: American erasure right
1: there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 the, yeah. So they were put on display where they were. Off, so oftentimes, the how it would happen is that um, people would pay money to go see them, like just be on a pedestal in like mm-hmm. say Boston or, or New York or Philadelphia. Oftentimes, there would be a, a doctor or a scientist who would be there to mm-hmm. explain, kind of give like a, a quote unquote like scientific account of their bodies. So this is like wow. also the time in the United States where the sort of the rise of scientific racism in the United States right. um, and Maxima Tola. And, and they were definitely a part of that um, sort of processes of like, you know, white scientists trying to make scientific justifications for keeping races separate and, you know, right. cl- you know racial inferiority. are They were, and they were traveled. They, they were, I guess, migrant subjects in that way, Or although it gets complicated and when we think of, you know, their status as migrant subjects is, is when they were like, you know, as, as the archive records show, like they were like forced to perform. They were like more or less like enslaved, right? Like they were owned by mm. white, they'd be like there was like court cases that were trying to prove whether or not they, who owned them. And the, like they were always like these like white showmen who were putting them up in these different cities. But they, I mean, they, they were presented to Queen Victoria. They were presented to wow. President Miller Fillmore. They were presented to, to, the, to Congress. They had, and they, you know, they also were part of like this broader freak show circuit in the 19th century, where they were, you know, part of this like P.T. Barnum-esque uh, circuit. So, you, um, I know there was like the movie that came out a couple years ago, *The Greatest Showman*, uh, with Hugh Jackman, that had a lot of, cr- I, 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 a lot of criticism about it because of how it kind of didn't show like ha- the fact that Barnum um, completely took advantage of people of color um, in and becoming famous. It kind of shows like, oh, like this happy like sense of like oh like we can all celebrate our differences and it's okay to be different but no that wasn't the case at all it was very much an exploitative practice but it was one of the most popular forms of popular entertainment in the United States right right? that these were like you know freak shows like circuses like these were like equivalent to for us like white television and social media right these were the the ways in which like and that people of all classes I mean mainly white you know probably almost predominantly white people could go and like pay a very little money, amount of money to go see a show. So we, we, we you find Maxim Bartola um, and, and for me, I, I sort of came across their history sort of haphazardly. Um, there isn't a lot of scholarship written about them at all, which um, may may not be a surprise to the readers of you know, the listeners on this podcast, right? Uh, some ways in which yeah. not only Latinx people, but Central Americans are like totally erased from like certain kinds of like dominant narratives. But I was just happened to be one day in, the archives here at Harvard and I, I came across this picture of them as children um, s- sitting on a chair um, in a room and, and then the back is that it was just dated 1850 in Boston and that, that's the only information I had but and I, I saw the name the, the Maxim Bartola which like, I re- I registered as like you know Spanish names mm-hmm. um, in Spanish so that, I think that kind of piqued my curiosity like okay like who are these people who I'd never heard about before, I'd never really read anything about them, but they existed, right? Like they they, they were doing certain types of work they were in the time period. So I think that sort of was, Maximo Bartola was sort of the entry point into the, the my broader project. Mm-hmm. Um, and now like they're like, they like, kind of, they, they're like, pretty central to the whole dissertation. But I, I think I, and I, I think it's important that they are indigenous Central American people, right? That they're not, I, I think oftentimes when we think of uh, if there is a such thing as, like, a Latinx 19th century, we oftentimes Mm -hmm. think of, like, people like José Martí. We think of, like, really elite um, white Latin Americans who are ex are traveling, who have the the privileges of, like, being expats and traveling Mm -hmm. from, usually from Cuba, Mexico, and who are writing, right? Like, uh, who are, like, writing letters and short stories. But but one of the reasons I'm so invested in thinking about performance is that it really centers, like, these, like, non- Western ways of express uh, cultural expression and memory, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. really. Like it's like the body is important here, right? The the different types of bodies, and of course, we can be careful about the language of body, right? Bodies, Mm -hmm. but I think it is for for me. I felt that that talking about was important because you know we don't have again the archive itself, and then like what's left about their lives. Like there's. Very few things that we have available for us to sort of repiece right. and reconnect this history. But it, I think if but when we have to contend with the fact that, you know, that their body, like the fact that they were so, that their bodies were so scrutinized and so mistreated, like, like allows mm-hmm. scholars to even write that history and for us to have that history. Right. I think like for this type of scholar, it's always like important to be aware of the politics of the archive and the materials that we have left over to even do this kind of work but I think it's yeah. important thinking about this time period that we don't just rely on like the written accounts of somebody. Right. Like we also right. think broadly about, you know, historical memory that includes like these embodied sort of narratives, um, ephemeral, like these like, kind of leftover fleeting like, things that we never get the full picture of. Right. Like I'll ne- we'll never be able to like, see, like, imagine like what the performance was like, like no one yeah. was alive. Right. Like, so I think that's one of the reasons that I, I like studying the past in, the, in this way I think it it presents like certain challenges for sure, but I think also really important like context for I think for some of the where we're at now with current kind of discourses on like colonialism and like Mm -hmm. um, migration, empire, Mm anti-blackness, and like Latinidad, like I think that's really where like my project is invested in like unearthing some of those histories about like how we come to the place where we are now with what is like a Latinx person. Yeah.
0: Yeah so how do you how do you contend with the limitations of the archive because Mm -hmm. it's from what you said all that we know are is the the legal record of the the court cases of people trying to decide their quote ownership Mm -hmm. and that's obviously from a certain perspective only, and how do you try and paint a fuller picture? Is that possible? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think it's it's never totally possible, right? There's always an impossibility of the archive that we have to contend with. And I think this is where like scholars working in histories of slavery, like Cyia Hartman and mm-hmm. others, have given us really important tools to think about how to negotiate the loss and erasure. So I, I think that's where my thinking really is, in, is like in conversational black studies. Um, but I, I think for, for my own material practice, it's being really expansive about the types of like quote evidence that I'm using. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not like, that's like legal cases, but it's also like uh, I use a lot of like newspaper accounts. I use a lot of photography, mm-hmm. like uh, medical journals. Um, I, and, I, and in, in multiple languages too, like I've done like archival work, like both here and in the, United, in the UK and in Europe and, try to do my best like, in archives like in Latin America and the Caribbean but that's in Central America that's like a lot yeah. harder um, which is because like don't exist um, right or, or they're not as accessible um, yeah for me at this time with my like, resources but I think that but I think you know I, and, and like in writing and like, recreating these narratives I think I never assume total mastery I think yeah. that's like a logic that is it, like really dangerous I, I think for those of us who are invested in you know, minoritarian experiences in the past, like, it'll never be complete, right? Because, like, the, you know, that that was never, like, the, the, the intent of the people who were in right. power, uh, mm-hmm. people who were, like, holding on to these materials, right? You know, for, for Maximo, I have to contend with the fact that, like, the reason that a lot of the materials exist is because a lot of white people had weird fetishes about, like, and freaked people, disabled people, people yeah. of color, and, like, hoarded stuff and collected stuff. So I think in the writing and and then in teaching this material, it's it's a matter of, you know, kind of embracing the messiness of the whole thing while still like drawing out insights. And I think this is like we're thinking about this is like a genealogy, right, Mm -hmm. about how Maxi and Bartola are part of a genealogy of latinx or central american or you know with the experiences of people of color in this country and that the, their resonances between what happened in like 1850 so it's happening in 20 in the 2010s right, right. so i think that's where you can at least kind of speculate about how these histories might have we can like kind of think about okay like the, the, the broader influence of these histories but it's never like perfect work i think it's i think part of that it can be frustrating definitely like being in the archive and it's also just like hard work it's not it's not like you know i Pleasurable. It's 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 nothing. And I think anyone who thinks that way is they're not really they don't have to contend with the realities of the the histories they're talking about. Mm. Um, So I I think Mm -hmm. I'm just really invested in telling like the best story that I can that is inevitably full of contradictions and losses that I can never hope to to obtain. But I think. The act of trying to counteract these dominant archives and narratives, I think, is what drives me in like telling, trying to tell the story, the stories of like the various people in my, my dissertation.
0: That's super fascinating. Can you tell me what you found in the arc, in the archives that you were at in the UK regarding Maximo and Bartola? You mentioned that like a queen saw them. It, yeah. Was mm-hmm. that was that part of? Weird monarchy culture where queens are just to be entertained, and this was a popular form of entertainment. Or can you just speak more about that incident and what the context was behind that?
1: Sure. So, Maxi Bartola, so they came to the United States first, and as far as I can tell, their first, like, kind of main Kind of sojourn was in boston in 1850 I and mean, they were here in the united states for maybe two to three years and it was in 1853 that they went to the united kingdom and this was like that you know there was already a well-established um, transatlantic like mm-hmm. per- freak show performance culture They're, so mm. um people different disabled and, and or people of color were already moving in these circuits are being forced to move in these circuits for for, for decades or so i think maxima artola the, their handler was invested in creating a successful performance, right? So it was only really natural to kind of expose them to broader audiences, which I brought them to to London, which is really one of the main centers of like kind of freak show culture in the nineteenth century. And it was commonplace for Queen Victoria, and in particular her husband Prince Albert, I believe, who was known to be like a, very much just interested in these in, in these sideshow performers. So like they, they weren't they weren't the only person. There are lots of other freak show performers who were put on display and wow. even like later on later on in the like when so like Maxi Bartola they kind of went back and forth through from the United UK to the United States through the 1850s and 1860s and Prince Albert when he, he was I think in 1860s when he came back to he came to visit the United States on, like, on a tour P.T. Barnum like had Maxi Bartola out for him to see along with other freak show performers so this is very much an established practice that we mm-hmm. register as okay like very fetishistic right but in the archives themselves, I, I knew that they had been there. So I had read some scholarship, but I, I think a lot of the existing scholarship on Moxie tend to focus mainly in the Victorian context. So they're really interested in like British culture in relationship to Central America. And I I, I was sort of more invested in thinking about this as like a tra- transnational frame, but I knew I, I wanted to go to those original, those archives and those materials I've decided in these few studies of them and found other stuff too. So I, for instance, in a medicine, a history of medicine, like archive in the UK, there's like a, a cast of their teeth and of their of their skulls, mm. right? Which is totally grotesque and disgusting. But this was like a and other. This is there are other people who were this was done to as well. People mm-hmm. that are not even part of my study, but I think it, it goes to show we have as scholars of color, we have to contend with the not even the violences, of their lives and what they experience, but also how that's remembered, right? Like these are also yeah. violent acts that are maintained in the archival materials <clears throat> so i think that is, is difficult work to do but i am trying to like my best to like piece together the story i think it was like necessary work but yeah i, I think it was interesting and I, I think it also is interesting as well to think about how the fact that max and we going to uk also kind of changes our thinking about Latin like latinx identity right because i think we, mm-hmm. we usually all we think of latinx as being, like, okay, a U.S. phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Like, people of Latin American and Caribbean descent, like, living in the United States. But I think it's interesting the fact that they were also moving transatlantically. They were moving in in the Mm -hmm. the U.K. and and mainland Europe. And in a really early time period, like, in the the middle of the 19th century. So I think that does something to sort of think through, like, okay, like how even in this earlier time period, what we think of as a Latinx subject is like not so much even dictated by the United States. And so I think that's like something I'm still kind of thinking through in my work, but I think it's worth like noting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot to think about. talking about Maximo and Bartola, you also explore how these representations of Indigenous life relied on images of Blackness to establish racial hierarchy among communities of color. Could you Mm -hmm. elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, this is I'm actually working on revising this section of my dissertation right now for publication. It's on my mind, but I, I think in my research, I saw that yeah indeed like Maxim and oftentimes are performed by themselves so just the two of them being displayed in various places but they also were put on display with other performers of color and particularly like other black performers or the freak show performers so I and I I noticed like how you know they they were how the the, the promoters the handlers and the the audience members spectators draw comparisons between them right so mm you know often mm -hmm. and oftentimes that would paint Usually would have the black performers in like a like inferior position to the to Maxim Barbola, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think in my, in my in, in, in I'm invested in like thinking through these sort of re- relations, right? And I, I think this is it's important to note that like not like a like a, it's not so much like oh this is like a moment of cross racial solidarity, like no, it's like not right. the case. So I, I think it's 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 very much like these are like histories of of forced entertainment where, but for whatever reason, like these white promoters thought it was beneficial to put them together, whether it's like to increase, I mean, you think about it in a bigger draw for, you know, bringing more people to see these shows, but also I, I think more importantly, it's like shows like, oh, like how, and like, so sort of these like racial logic of the time period, people were thinking about these like groups together in some way. So I think for me, it's important to like understand that history as a way to sort of makes show that, perhaps in, in like sort of a, a history a historical project of like a Latinx subject that and blackness anti-blackness was always there which like we already right. know right but i think this is like gives like one example of how that sort of manifests itself like in the context of performance culture and freak shows and i you know I, I think it's you know and, I, and and like i try to trace like how that the, the sort of relational exhibitions change over time and i think also it, changes as they get older as become like less popular like i think they're the heyday of their performances are really in the 1850s and 1860s but i think people sort of lost interest in them after time but they were still being i think that's when we have a sense of them as being adults so i think it's also something that is important to contend with is how they were seen as children first but then like they, they become older right and i think that changes like a sense of ownership over their spectacle and how they were choosing to participate in this sort of economy of like popular entertainment that still relied on the sort of fetishization of their bodies. But yeah, so I, I think this is an important history that we don't really like think about. I, I, yeah. I feel like these types of histories that are invariably like messy and complicated but like necessary. I, I think as... I find these types of narratives are important to sort of give context, maybe some of the issues that we see now and in, in terms of contending with anti blackness and like in mm-hmm. like ideas like Letting Out or Latinx community or even how we separate like black from like Latinx, like that like dichotomy like is like totally you know, as like people are pointing out is like that is like totally like erroneous and like does so much damage and i think at the very least like my project like shows that there's a longer history of this happening <laughs> it's like not yeah, so much exactly. like, like pr- it's not i'm not i'm pretty like, much like not invested in like providing like solutions like oh like you know i i, I could care less proving that latinx existed right but i think mm-hmm. it's by focus by like kind of being attentive and tracing how that's why i care so much about studying the, the body right like the body on display i think those offer uh, other forms of thinking about this this problem right um, that I think can be potentially useful. Or at least that's the hope. As like yeah. probably anyone who does this kind of historical work always like hopes that like the work has some purchase um, in, in the in the present day situations. But I think that's that's where I'm coming from with it. So b-
0: given all of the gaps in the archive. I am not sure that this is a fair question, but how do you write about the agency that Maximo and Bartola had, especially mm-hmm. if you are tracing their performance life, which range from them being kids to being adults? Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. How, yeah. How did you approach that?
1: Yeah. So I think I had. I think in starting with this project, I, I think I. S- came with the idea that I think is endemic to a lot of ethnic studies and critical race scholarship is like this narrative of resistance, right? That like, yeah. all like <laughs> And like looking for that, right? Which I, I think, I'm not trying to negate that necessarily. I think that those are important mm-hmm. and I think those moments are, are ones in which we rally upon and and draw from, right? But I, I think I really had to not try to romanticize their, their lives and yeah. their experiences and to yeah. fit it into this like rubric of uh, anti-colonial like uh, resistance or, or something like that. Uh I, You know, I am really careful to like not, are you, you know, I'm, you know, I'm really careful to like not ascribe agency when I would want it to be. Like sometimes like you, you right. wish like there could yeah. be more, like, right. Like, right. I, you, I think when you, you like as someone who like is invested in like a better future, I always want there to things to be right. Like you, 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 I think we're all best in that one way or another, but I think in order to get to that place, you have to understand that the, the longer histories that were off, that were not that way. Right. Yeah. Um, that, so I think in, you know, I do my best to show the whole picture, which I'll, which may or may not be as palatable for like an ethnic studies or Latinx studies audience that is like, can be contemporarily fixated on like narratives of resistance. But I think Max and Bartola are really crucial to that, the, those types of histories. So I, I you know, I, I just think scholars, people working in these types of fields, they just need to be like, just do more work and be more honest and like be more like, transparent about what was happening. And I think focusing on subjects that aren't just trying, that are fit within like established notions of like resistance, but are actually doing other types of work that are still important to know, I think.
0: Yeah. So this is just a very casual observation, but... But I say this to support your point that these histories are necessary to understand our current context. I was watching a Hey Arnold episode. Did you watch that Nickelodeon cartoon show, Hey Arnold? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So I rewatched an episode recently, and it was the episode that tells the origin story of his parents as he needs an orphan with his grandpa and the origin story is that his parents went to this primitive village It's literally the word mm-hmm. that were used to find savages in mm-hmm. I think yeah I just said Central America or San Diego specifically okay. but I just remember that I was watching it recently and being so incredibly offended mm-hmm. and being very hurt that I had likely watched that and just absorb that as a normal depiction of Central Americans or Salvadorans. Mm-hmm. And I think that this completion of, like, I think Masala being depicted as Mastic children, I think is super important to understand the way that central americans have been otherized and in that indigenous people uh, from central america mm-hmm. have been authorized in particular mm-hmm. now that i'm remembering is that what wasn't there some kind of elaborate myth narrative that was told about maximum bartola that they were mm-hmm. found yeah. in a mesoamerican temple can you, can you tell us that story
1: yeah so Alongside their initial promotion, uh, a travel narrative was published uh, and this was a, which has now proven to be entirely fictitious account of, um, yeah, as you're saying, right, of this, this, these group of American explorers who had heard of this like fabled land uh, in, in El Salvador and went on this quest to find this like forgotten race of people that was like untouched by modern civilization, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in actuality, that, that fictitious narrative, which was published initially in 1850 and was republished at least three times through, and was kind of adapted um, to give more information as, like, you know, Max Bartholomew became more and more famous. That was highly cribbed from an actual travel narrative of this guy, John Lloyd Stevens, who was an American explorer who was sort of tasked by the U.S. government to sort of survey Central America for mm-hmm. imperial Brito. Project, yeah. as a part of the pre- American pre- Imperial Project. I mean and he also and it was him and this guy uh, and he also brought an illustrator with him who you know made a lot of drawings and etchings of like the different sort of like architecture and sim- the symbols he was in- they were encountering while they're in Central America. But yeah, like this narrative like totally copies like that story pretty much verbatim. And like that, that kind of sets the context for this fictitious narrative. But yeah, I think it, it just goes to show like how the like, the the history the historicity of like these narratives about Central America, right? That mm-hmm. were happening in like hey Arnold in like the nineteen nineties. Yeah. Um that was like still like, you know, this like narrative like of like discovery and of yes. uh, this, like sort of like placing yes. Central America sort of first of, probably and like, homogenizing it, but then also like kind of placing yeah. sort of this like primitivist like sort of framework, right? That yeah so we that can definitely
0: like the like, constant colonialism of the region.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. mm yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think that's why it, I think it's so. You know, I love the fact that you bring up this example because this shows like the durability of these narratives over time, right? Like even if we can't, yeah. like, no one knows who like Max. Most people don't know who Maxim Bartolo yeah. are, but like we have these like these references like still linger, right? And I think that that's like the work of like that, that's you know me as like a, a humanities scholar, the, the like seeing how like, representations like carry it over time. I think that's really important. And, mm-hmm. you, yeah, you, you can even now, like, think of analogies between, like, accompanied, like, minors from Central America, the children, right, mm-hmm. to, like, Maxima, but I think other scholars make this point as well. But these, like, carry out, like, in the discourse and, like, how we think about certain, like, places and spaces. So yeah, both how, like How, like, white sort of majoritarian people think of it, but also how we, mm-hmm. people call, you know, people from, they also think of it themselves, right? So I think it's That's important really. to, like, like, yeah, be thoughtful about and, like, try to use these histories for, you know, for better action.
0: Yeah. I think this is super important, especially because there is the aspect of family separation in this story, which is very much a Salvadorian phenomenon. And it reminded me of, I don't know if you've been following the really horrific case of the family detention centers where the kids were ordered to leave but the judge didn't order for parents to also be released mm-hmm. so there's just this tension of do the kids remain in, sorry it's not even a tension this is, this is the tension that the government has created where families parents have to choose between having their par- their children incarcerated with them or having them release the strangers that they don't know. And the nonprofit AISA talked about how a lot of their reporter, white supporters have been volunteering to adopt the children. Oh, and wow. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. and, <laughs> yes. And it's, it's such a misguided way of thinking because these kids are not orphaned, their parents are detained, but they just need to be released as a family unit, and uh, it's just, I'm just thinking about this bombardment and the story of, what well, I guess the question I, I do have also is, is there clarity in the archive about how they were separated from their mother? Because it's, it what I read was, I'm not sure if it was true, so I just want to ask
1: what that yes. was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the question of whether it's true or not is like, uh, at the case of all the, you know, that's another, going back to the question of agencies, like we also have to contend with the fact that so much of the material about their lives was fabricated and like spectacularized. Yeah. So it's even hard to pinpoint any kind of like, origin point, right? I think as far as I can tell, I, I think I would go back to that court case I mentioned, which was, I think, was in. Phil, I want to say it was in Philadelphia, like in maybe 1851 or 52, but it actually was the case where there was a there, there was there was their the white sh- showman who was claiming ownership over them, and then there was someone else who was at was at least in the newspaper I, I was like saying that he was representing their parents and that the parents, well, you know, uh-huh. were sort of misinformed and mis- misled about what was going to happen with their children, and there was like, an attempt to kind of sort of get them back. But I, the court, like, I have to go back, and it'd be interesting. I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this, too, like, you know, given your 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 expertise, how the, one would think about it from like, a legal perspective. But mm-hmm. uh, yes, yeah, so they lost, like the. The white showman maintain and control of them, and started this whole very lucrative career enterprise. So yeah, I, it's, it's yeah. I guess it really kind of shows how these things, these treat, treatment of Central Americans, of, of people of color, of, of immigrants, like has always been the. It's like never like new. I guess it, it's always. I guess it, yeah, it adapts and changes different circumstances, but there are also these like longer histories that I think are really. Terrible and harrowing, but important to reckon with. I'm actually
0: super interested in that case because I wonder if there'd be any resonances with the the recent SCOTUS case about whether or not a family family of a Mexican child being shot by a border patrol agent on Mexican men mm. could bring X claim. The court said no, they couldn't. I wonder if it was the same kind of logic of the the parents not having rights in the American
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I've never read for for this Max Porto case. I've I've never been able to find like like proceedings or or I'm not sure the terminology, but it's all been newspaper accounts. So mm-hmm. and like through like letters to the editor that. Their handler wrote that um, the person arguing on behalf of the parents wrote. So I, I've yet to do that. Recently, I, I think I think I think when you come to realize in in doing this type of work, it's like never done. There's always more things to do. So I think that's something like as. I, you know, and I could, you know, and, and I could eat, like, you are know, working on this type of project, dissertations of what you have to write in order to get your PhD is often seen as like the first draft uh, of, of a broader project. So I think mm-hmm. these types of questions and like and like talking to people, it's like, okay, how to continuously like tell a better story and, and to incorporate new sources. So that's something I, I definitely will want to think more about um, as I continue working on this like, part of, the, of my project.
0: So recently many Black and Indigenous people have criticized the term mix because it it erases the Black and Indigenous history and people who have survived colonialism and capitalism and remain surviving and thriving today. You are still using the term. What do you think about the term? And have you decided, why have you decided to use it in your dissertation?
1: Yeah, uh, I think I really value those critiques. I think those, anyone who's even attempting to do like a Latinx studies project, I think now- have to contend with those those critiques and, and the those perspectives, right? So I, I think for me in my work, I I, will, I, will tell you, I really try to center these like material histories of how people were living, right? And how people were understood and in their particular time period. So I think Latinx somehow, somewhat, but not really, like best approximates the various experience the kind of various experiences I'm trying to understand. And more so, I I see my project as really trying to understand those broader histories of how blackness indigeneity have been sort of evacuated from like a latinx or like latinidad right like my, my project sent you know on the one hand it, it like centers black and indigenous like experiences within what we today might call like a latinx subject or latinidad but it also shows how i make an argument that performance culture that you know bodies on display were also how like a latinx subject that was a, a white latinx subject sort of kept as, like, the, the the most important thing, right? So, so I think my project really takes on those critiques and tries to provide, like, historical context to them as best as it can. And I, I think it, it's one, like, it's a position that requires doing extra labor of reading across, reading in Black and Indigenous studies, centering these experiences and, and these critiques and these frameworks in a way that historically hasn't been done in Latinx studies. So I think the field as a whole is, like, really coming, has, it's, like, coming in, like, a reckoning with with, like, a lot of the biases that it's had but so I think my work is like, and by focusing on this particular time, like with the, like the, the people that I talk about is like adding, trying to add some historical context like to these, this like broader conversation. But I, I think I am excited to see like what the future of the field may hold, even if, if that means like the, the field like no longer exists, right? I Yeah. If, have very little investment in like trying to prove that like Latinx existed in like a historical in like the 19th century, but more so kind of showing these like different moments of like contradiction and collectivity that I think were happening, you know, in this time in the, p- the time period that I'm working in. But yeah, I, I think you know I, I think like the, the current like, kind of critiques about it right now, I, I think are things that I, I always had kind of perplexed about. Like even in college, maybe even like, you feel similarly, but I, I always. I, I always seem like incongruous the term like latinx or latino i always seem incongruous with the variety of people that that i saw existed and like the hierarchy yeah. that existed between certain types of racialized you know, people, you know bodies or certain countries are privileged right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I think um <laughs> we, we always have like we like i think for me like as like a performance studies well I, I understand like the labels are important I'm, I'm much more invested in like understanding like the material histories of like how Certain like racialized how racialized objects and bodies were used to sort of establish these hierarchies, right? I think that's like the import I had, like as as someone who's like thinks through like embodiment and performance and like you know cultural representation more broadly. As yeah, anyone who like isn't taking up these centering these experiences and taking up these critiques and frameworks seriously, like like that's I don't think that's where the field should go. That's where it can't go. Like I think it's totally like progressive <laughs> if yeah. anything other than that happens um so yeah so I think I'm I'm like curious to see what will happen in like the next couple years from like that my like, intellectual like kind of perspective of like sure. the, the, the project of like the Phoenix Studies for sure
0: cool oh my gosh this was such an amazing conversation is there anything else that you wanted to add on the academics part of things before we transition to talking about 73 Edgewood yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, no, nothing like not. I, I'm really excited. I really, I, I think for me, I'm no matter what the work I do, I always want to make sure that it's written in an accessible way that it always like keeps you know, community in mind. So like, I'm like really, I, I'm grateful for like opportunities like this to talk about my work. And I think, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to like just continue this, these types of conversations. I, I think I, I any kind of form of academia that doesn't that is like invested in just like keeping knowledge within its ivory tower or assume that there's like not knowledge outside of it like any of that sort of stuff is like I think not what needs to be done I think it's now more than ever so yeah so I'm excited to continue these types of conversations
0: yay cool okay so I poured my shot
1: of tequila. Here it is. <laughs> okay, wait, let me get mine. I don't have tequila. I don't... Am I I'm kind of like a vodka? Well, anyways. Okay, yeah. I got my shot now. She is... She is... Cheers. Oh, shit, I
0: spilled.
1: Oh. Oof. I also Oof. can't do shots in the same way that I could in college. Like, I get anything like I my know. body just can't tolerate drinking this is, and stuff. This is... <clears throat> This is a special
0: occasion to talk about Seventy Three Edgewood.
1: <laughs> Seventy Three Edgewood, oh my God, <laughs> memories.
0: I want to memorialize Seventy Three Edgewood because it has now been gentrified. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if we don't memorialize it, it will be lost because nobody archived <laughs> it at Yale. <laughs> no,
1: I mean we have. There's a Facebook. Pa- there's like a Facebook page for it, but it doesn't really have like pictures or anything. The I mean, Facebook page like,
0: was made before us, and it's like.
1: I think like we, made, I think it was made like, before us, but then like we kind of like took it over. We did, but we didn't but, do anything, was it? It was not really, not really. But could have been a lot I, more. We're, we're like talking about archives and like memory and stuff. I like, guess I think those types of experience, you know, those types of like, experiences are like really important. Like seven, you know, I guess maybe we should explain it. Seven. I don't know if, Have you talked about 73 three Edward on the podcast?
0: Oh, this is um, the first time.
1: Uh, okay, so okay. I don't know. Do you want to? You want to explain or?
0: Okay, yeah, so... start us off. Senior year at Yale, I wanted to live off campus because I really wanted my last year to just be good vibes only. Hmm. And Chris, you were also trying to do the same and you wanted to live with a yeah. your best friend at the time. Yeah. And I don't know how... How did you hear about this house, actually? I don't remember how I heard about I,
1: it. So, yeah, so I think... It was, yeah, so I, I'm a, I was a year below Yvette, so I was a sophomore, but we knew each other because we were both really involved with the Latinx Cultural Center, and I think it was that, what was her name, Gabriela Puente, like the, she was like Yeah, a that's what CL. I
0: remembered, yeah. So, so,
1: so I think it was an, it was like an inherited house, I guess, so, so yeah. she like lived there, and <laughs> That's true. <I> <laughs> Yvette like knew her, and... I, yeah, like an event. I guess I've been like saying, "Oh, like I want to live off campus." I've been like talking about it, and I think she had heard. This so we connected, and I had yeah, like my Yan and It was my friend who were we were both in the same dorm at Yale. So at Yale, you could only live with people who were in what they call residential colleges, which was kind of like these like residential yeah. communities at Yale. But you were only allowed to live with people who were part of your college. So I and in your
0: year too, right?
1: Yeah, and yeah. you could you could only yeah. It was like very the options were very limited, and I, I was just like so as a first-gen student and, like, as a poor student, you know, like, working class. And I was just, like, so over, like, living in these, like, really opulent places. I don't know. It never felt comfortable to me. I always felt on edge, like, living in the dorms. Really? So, no like, All shade. Yeah, like, I just and having you know, not great roommates. Having to like, suffer through like, a name, like, dining hall conversation, like, it's just not cute. Like, it was not fun. So, yeah, we're, like, let's just like get a house, like let's do this. So I think that's how we kind of came to find 73 Edgewood. Sorry yes. if, like the, the finding language, but, but yeah, that's, we kind of came into, be, came into contact or, or whatever with 73 Edgewood. Um, yeah. yeah, but it was not really like a common thing. I, don't, I feel at the time, I think people were slowly starting to move off campus, but I think we we're yeah. definitely like one of the first people to, to do that. Because he yeah, like from, was from the Latinx like left-
0: community it. at the time, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think because you really wants wanted their students to be in the. Cause that's such a big part of the, the quote unquote experience. They wanted you. I remember like my the, the the head of my college like really gave me a lot of shit for like wanting to move off campus. She's like, why do you want to do this? Like, why do you hate us? Why do you want to leave? And it's just like Jesus, this is exactly why, exactly why I want to leave. Why do you leave? Because I. I'm not in like I was invested in spaces that I felt I was actively contributing to, not ones that were already yeah. built for me, right? Like that's why I was invested in like La Casa and first-gen communities at Yale. I felt like there was it was like a, a, a mutual thing where we're like building these communities and we're mutually supporting each other. I wasn't just trying to play intramurals I went, like I just <laughs> like other stupid shit like that. Uh, people at Yale like were invested in. I was just like I don't like I just don't have time for that. I just yeah got it. Yeah. It was like yeah, fake school spirit yeah exactly exactly
0: yeah so So we decided to to move into this house with also with our fourth house Saint Fonzie and to be honest like even though we're talking about this house like it was like you know a dope fucking spot and it was because of the people but the actual structure itself oh no was not great oh no no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, it was. It, was, it was a mess. And the landlord mm-hmm. was just taking advantage of the fact that it was like college students that were renting who were not very knowledgeable, not very savvy mm-hmm. about the law and what landlord is supposed to do. Oh
1: yeah. Like it was
0: and actually yeah, he was my first landlord. Yeah. Same. So I really same. didn't I didn't know what to expect of a landlord. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like the basement was disgusting. It, it was like, <laughs> like like three quarters of the year into living there, we found a mouse stomped into the floor on of the floor of the basement where we mm-hmm. had already had multiple events there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and like the bathroom upstairs was like disgusting it would like clog or something, oh, yeah. right? It was just, Yeah, it, it was, a was plant I think the house growing was, out of it. Yeah, there's, like, the house is, like, built, I think, like, in 1821. Like, it's an, like yeah, it's really old. Like, it's, like, an yeah. old, I know, I guess it was a single family house, but it was, like, repurposed um, with, like, gentrification. But, yeah, like, I think it was, I, yeah, I think it was a lot of stuff I, I hadn't had to deal with before. So, in some ways, I'm, like, glad that, I, I feel like in comparison to, like, my peers who didn't, had never had to deal with that stuff, I'm glad I I negotiating like living with the landlord and like, paying rent and bills and, and things that my peers, like, my friends from high school had already been dealing with but us like in this like elite space like we never like it's yeah. like oh you go to Yale you don't have to worry about this so we take care of everything for you. Like, yeah. So I think it really was like a, like a period of like growth and like getting figuring out how to deal with quote unquote like real world situations that people already deal with their entire lives so but yeah I, I think I really appreciated how it really kind of came like a hub like it came like a space mm-hmm. More, like, for people of color. We would call our first-gen, low-income students, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, like, it was, a, I think we, we really didn't have those types of spaces, especially spaces that weren't Yale-owned, right, that like, we could just express ourselves fully, they were, we didn't have to kind of enact quote-unquote Yale student, and, but we could just be whatever, we could listen to the music they want to listen to, and just figure out our shit as people in our <laughs> early 20s, you yeah. know. A messy time for of different reasons, but yeah. It was. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, and it was it was one of the only spaces at Yale that was POC only, and I just love that we reclaimed <laughs> that space for ourselves, and we threw mm-hmm. some of the best parties on campus, yeah, off campus I, that year.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I lived there for two years, so after you graduated, I lived there for another year, and some people stayed, some people came on. So, like our mutual, our friend Yvonne. Who's was another first-gen uh, Latina, she, she joined the house. But yeah, and, and after I graduated in 2015, it still was that kind of space, right? So, like, you know, we took advantage of our resort. We had, like, a basement, so we could have parties. We could, have parties.
0: We threw the yeah, stuff pachanga in we just, 2014.
1: Uh, yeah, like, <laughs> we, yeah I, and I think it was important. I think for me, it was definitely, like, a defining moment at my time at Yale, where I think before that, I really didn't feel like I had a place, that mm-hmm. so I felt mm-hmm. like this is like an, a very intentional space where I like actively trying to live in community with other people and try to even if for like um, uh, a man like a part in the moment of the space of a party or whatever try to make Yale a more tolerable place yes. and to like yeah. not so have fun like, we tried to make it fun yeah just so fun because yeah. like so much <laughs> of like and, and I think it speaks to like the first-gen experience but so much of being a first-gen student is like kind of performing this this Polish, right? You always have to be like yeah. on point and always, you know, like always working and hustling. But I think I really appreciate the fact that we could just be our like, our whole selves and like even it finding our different parts of ourselves that we kind of pushed away for the sake of mm-hmm. doing well in school or whatever. You know, I, I think those are like the moments that I, I think were really for me were like life's like because they saved me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I probably wouldn't have be been able to like get through Yale in the way that had I not had that kind of space. So.
0: I 100% oh, yeah. agree. I think it's so important, and I wanted to memorialize the space because how many years was it that it lasted before white girls took it over? I,
1: I mean, I so I got in 2015. I mean, I think I, I went back like I came, so I, when I moved from I moved from New Haven to Cambridge. So I remember I, I went to a party after I graduated, and I went there a couple times. But I think it maybe lasted like maybe a couple years, like two or three years after we left because i think it, cause i think it was really kind of beautiful to say it stayed with people for at least for a while they had people that we knew and we like trusted mm-hmm. and you know cause i think i think at yale like there was on one hand there's people like us or, like our know, first and low-income students who were moving off campus another thing is the fact you're on full financial aid like you also have like money for the first time i, I think i don't think that. that's yes. like yes cause, cause, like that's know, the first work. gen
0: scam yeah though.
1: like that's the it's a thing right like you because at, at yeah like you know once you pay off tuition, whatever's left over, you just got money like deposited into your account. Like, uh, me, I was like mm-hmm. the, the richest I ever felt in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, you have to negotiate. I think there's like that, and there's on the other hand, there's like, there's people who love campus who live in like super fancy apartments in downtown yeah. New Haven. So like, that was not our space, right? No. So I, I think it was important that, you know, it, you know, people who are like, trying to live in places that were akin to what they probably grew up living in right like they're yeah. trying to do that but we're trying to do I mean maybe we're also doing that as well but I think it's more like oh yeah we're doing this because we really care about community <laughs> and yeah. it's like potentially cheaper but yeah let's look like at the first you know like having to cook our meals clean too much it just, that kitchen was disgusting yeah.
0: also there were yeah. individuals we had no rules that was a no rules house and yeah, even, but that was just, even though i do have Eric's politics like i don't know if i could live like that again because i remember i came home and somebody else who did not live in that house was cooking my chicken mm-hmm. it was somebody you had invited to the house
1: oh really i don't remember uh,
0: what's your
1: name, I mean, De- 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 Deanna. She's a banker. <laughs> I don't know. That, uh, oh, oh my god. Okay, yeah, I remember now. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think
0: that was a long walk to the grocery store. I didn't appreciate
1: that. That is true. That is true. I mean, I think we. I think in making an open space, like it's inevitably going to you are going to have like people who are like are not going to respect the space. But I think like by and large, I think we were try to be as intentional as we could about like, where like, it's not just. Whole, it's like a frat house, right? It's, yeah. you know, this is like, we're like trying to like, we also live here. And I, I think it, from what I could tell, it got the people who live there after a little more care about the space. And I don't know, I like planted flowers and stuff. <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> I don't know, I think it was. It was our, yeah, I mean,
0: so many things would be different now. So many things so would, would be, yeah, be cleaned. cleaned. The bathtub would be clean,
1: the bathroom would be clean, the kitchen would be clean. Dealing with like a shitty, racist landlord does not fly. Yeah, I, I, I but uh, it was still like a lot of good times. And I, I think it really became a space for not just us, for, for like, the whole community, right? I think people, people weren't even, we didn't even have met. Like that's still like a, a reference point, right? Like 73 is like a reference point. <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> like, I, like when I met like younger generations of Yale students or, oh yeah, yeah, like, new people live there, went to a party there. So it, it's like nice to know that even for like, for, like a couple of years, at least like we were able to. Do something that wasn't just making Yale a better place, upholding Yale's name or something, but <laughs> mm-hmm. for ourselves. So,
0: yeah, I know that was really dope. Uh, one day we'll throw another party there in the basement. Yeah.
1: Oh DAA. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I knew. laughs> yep, it's, one it's, day
0: with, a, with AC.
1: <laughs> yeah, with AC, <laughs> and we'll go to like AC and like our favorite restaurants and bars in New Haven.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay chris well i don't want to take up too much more of your time thank you so much for coming onto the podcast with me and for talking about your research and about the gts at yale is there there any parting words you wanted to give
1: no i thank you for the invitation like i've really i've admired you since i met you but i really appreciate like the work that this podcast is doing love you chris and yeah like I, i think it's really like it's really important uh work that we're doing that you know i really you know any work that like we're allowed to like maintain our values i think is important mm-hmm. so i think it's too often that we just like choose not to do that work and just like assimilate so yeah i, I think i i'm excited to the future of these types of endeavors yes um, so.
0: yes and i'm sure this is just the first part of an ongoing conversation so exactly thank you so much for coming and i hope you all enjoy Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. If you would like to support my project, you can become a Patreon at radiocachimbona.com and you can also follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Radiocachimbona. Leaving an Apple podcast review also really helps. Thank you so much for supporting Radiocachimbona. Cachimbona. <music>